0: Well, I was reading a book recently which began with an interesting mental exercise that I'd like everyone here to engage in as well. It starts off a little bit weird, okay, and that involves all of you shutting your eyes. So if you can do that, and trust us, we're not going to go through your handbags or your wallets or anything like that while we're doing it. But I want you to shut your eyes right now, if you can, and I want you to try and visualise what I say to you. I want you to try and clear your mind of uh, your worries, your concerns, your burdens, your university degree, your business, your work, your relationships. And just focus your mind on what I'm saying. Imagine going to the funeral of a loved one. I want you to picture yourself driving to the church, parking the car and getting out. And as you walk inside the church building, you begin to notice the flowers and the music and you see the faces of friends and family you pass along the way. Uh, you feel that sense of shared sorrow, uh, of losing, the joy of having known, um, that these emotions and feelings that radiate from the hearts of the people there. As you walk down to the front of the room and look inside the casket, you suddenly come face to face with yourself. This is your funeral three years from today. All the people that are there have come to honour you, to express feelings of love and appreciation for your life. And as you take a seat and wait for the service to begin, you look at the programme in your hand, there are to be four speakers, one family member, one friend, someone from work, and someone from here, from, from church. I want you to think deeply. What would you like each of these speakers to say about you? What would you like them to say about the life that you've lived? What words would you like to be used that define the years that you've had on earth? What kind of life is it that you wish for? You can open your eyes now now, I, I don't know about you, I found this exercise extremely confronting. I have one life. So do you. As I get older, it becomes more and more apparent to me that this is not a dress rehearsal that we're in. This is it. This right now is not a practice run for the next time around. This is it. What kind of life is it that you're seeking? What kind of life is it that you desire? When you have the opportunity to go to the end and look backwards, what is it that you wish to have done? And more importantly, who is it that you truly, earnestly desire to be? And what does God have to do with it? We're looking at a part of the Bible called Ephesians, And Ephesians is in the New Testament of the Bible, written around 30 years after Jesus. It's written by a guy called Paul to a church, a young church, not actually dissimilar to our own, uh, in a Turkish town called Ephesus. But the letter is not just for them. The letter is written to the universal church, to all Christians everywhere in all time. God speaks to us as them. As we looked at the first part of Ephesians last week, I think there is three words, simplistic perhaps, But three words that struck out to me about the main themes of that, and they are that God is amazing. He is amazing. The first section of Ephesians is all about His power, His attributes in creation. That there is not one inch of this universe that is not His. He is amazing. But it's not just in creation that we see God's power and beauty And majesty. It's also his recreation. It's in his salvation of people. That from the beginning of humanity, there has been a narrative thread weaving its way through, bringing God's people to himself. And my dear friends, it's at exactly that point. Recreation. Salvation. God reaching from the heavens to drag women like Emily, men like me, people like you, if you are a Christian, to himself. That brings us to the reading that Kira is about to come and give to us today. Last week was all about God's incredible declaration in creation, but tonight we see something different. We see a prayer. A prayer that Paul the author and indeed God himself declare about Christians. What kind of life is it that you want to live? What words do you want people to say about you? The incredible news is that we do not need to go outside to find our meaning, outside and beyond to find our purpose. We do not need to uncover for ourselves from deep within what our lives should be about. All we need to do is listen. Listen to God, the creator, the recreator, the saviour, as he tells us what our lives should be about. I'm going to pray now, and then Kira is going to come up and bring us our Bible reading for today. Will you bow your heads and pray with me? Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, that you are not a silent God, but one who speaks. And We thank you, Lord, that you speak to us regardless of our circumstance, regardless of our background, regardless of our religiosity, regardless of our purity, you are a God who speaks. And Father, I pray that as you speak tonight, we would truly listen in our hearts to what it is that you tell us through your word, that we would grip hold of your truth to us and be transformed. We pray all of this in your son, Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to invite Kira to come up and bring us her reading.
1: The reading tonight is from Ephesians chapter one verse fifteen to twenty three and can be found on page one one seven three the church Bibles, starting at verse fifteen for this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the Lord of our lord Je- the God of our Lord Jesus Christ which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. This is the word of the Lord.
0: So what kind of life uh, do you want to live? What sort of person do you want to be at your funeral? What words do you want people to say? Let's look at this prayer that we are given, a prayer that a church leader, Paul, prays for Christian people like us, the people in Ephesus and us today, to display for us the track forward and the way that we should be seeking to live. Have a look at verse 15 and 16. Just the first few words. And you'll notice that what happens at the beginning of this prayer is there are three things that are asked for. Well, three things that are said. There's two elements of thankfulness and one request. Verse 16, we see he's thankful. Let me read it. I've not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Why? Ever since, verse 15, I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people. Why is Paul, the writer of this, thankful for the Ephesian Christians? Two reasons. Their faith and their love. Are those words you want on your tombstone? Here lies a person of faith. Here lies a person of love. But what do they mean? Well, have a look in more detail. Faith here is not just a meaningless trust in the universe, a kind of spiritual crossing of fingers, hoping for the best. What it says is faith in the Lord Jesus. What that means is a saving faith, a believing faith. And faith is best defined, I think, is not just believing that Jesus Christ existed, but believing his promises. Not just believing the truth about him, but believing him. When he says, it is through my sacrifice that you can be saved. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Faith is not just believing Jesus lived, he died, and rose from the dead. You can believe all those things and not be a Christian. Faith is taking him at his word. And we know that this is a living and breathing and active faith. Why? Because look what this faith does. It changes how they live. It makes them have love. Love. Love for all God's people. As many of you will know, the Greek word for love is a bit more complicated than the English word. It's much more beautiful, I reckon. Greek was the original language this was written in. And there's four words for love, or well, at least four that we know of for love in Greek. Eros, storge, philia, and agape. Now, each of those loves have a different use, like a kind of a friendship, kind of love, a family love, romantic love. But the one that's used here is the final one, which is agape. Agape means selfless and sacrificial love. And it's the word that is not exclusively, but almost always used to describe the love God has for people. Selfless, sacrificial, not earned. As if God is looking at us and somehow he's, oh, you're impressive. I can't help but love you. That is not God's love for us. God's love for us is relentless, but it's selfless. It's sacrificial. It is not earned. It's given. And here we have the love that we are to have for God's people is that kind of love. Do you think that's easy? Do you find love easy? Please come and find me afterwards and teach me how. It's very easy for me to love the people I like. But this is a terrifying statement because it says the word all. I won't get you to turn around and look, but that means every single face that I'm facing, love all. And that is incredibly hard to do. In fact, I find it the hardest thing to do. I met recently uh, with a remarkable uh, young woman from our church, uh, and she grew up in in a Christian family, a loving family, but after an accident with her father, something changed with him. Uh, Her once loving father turned abusive, abusive towards her mother and abusive towards her, still involved in the local church, putting on a front, but at home something ugly and new emerged. Eventually divorce happened, but what happened next was horrifying. She and her mother were, were completely isolated, spurned. Isolated from family, isolated from friends, and worst of all, isolated from church. Her faith in God got dimmer and dimmer. She was angry at God, but also angry at Christians, God's people, angry about everything. Still believed in Jesus, but did she believe him? However, as life went on, praise God, in her late teens... She realized the truth is, and this is, without God, there's nothing. I want to say that to you. If you're not a Christian here tonight, it might not feel that way. But let me assure you that the Bible says in our lives exhibit the truth that without God, life is nothing. And I reached a point with this young woman. She cried out to God a prayer that I'm sure many of us have echoed, words to the effect of Jesus I've tried to live my life with you on the side. I've tried to live my life with you in the the passenger seat, so to speak, on the periphery. But I've realized that I have nothing. So I'm going to trust you. Not just believe in your existence. Believe in your resurrection. Believe that you are God. I'm going to believe you. Trust you all the way. Believe in you. Believe you. My friends, that is faith. Living faith, breathing faith, saving faith. And it's a faith that transforms. Not that much later, she sat in a car with her father and said some of the words which are almost impossible for many of us to utter. You know the words that she's going to say? Dad, I forgive you. Now how is it possible Let me put it to you that if you're a person of faith, if you are a Christian here tonight, you will know deep down somewhere within the confines of perhaps a hardened but a once open soul how this is possible. That if you are genuinely a Christian, you will know that you are the recipient of the greatest grace, the greatest mercy, the greatest kindness this universe has ever seen. That God would look on people like us and say, you, I want you. You have not earned it but you have it. You have my heart. You have new life. Faith and love. What wonderful words. Then what Paul does, look at verse 17. He gives thanks. He thanks God for this church, these people, their faith, their love, and then he gives a request. Let me read this for you. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ The glorious Father may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so you may know Him better. I wonder, if you could ask God for anything, what would you ask Him for? Have you ever been one of those times where you're at the negotiating table with God? God, if you give me this, I'll give you that. God, if if you make this happen for me, well, I'll go be a missionary in. I'll definitely go to this church. I'll try and... God, I'll... If you could ask him for anything right now, what would it be? What is your greatest prayer? Mine is often material. Health, wealth, romance. Not new romance for my wife, I'm just saying. (laughs) That she would stay in love with me. What about you? Grades, work, promotion... In this verse here, these few words, what we have made for us in crystal clear, high definition, surround sound, is the deepest need for every single Christian person sitting in this room. It's also the greatest need for every non-Christian person sitting in this room as well. But this is specifically written to you here, Christian, and I want you to see it. Do you see? He prays initially for what? The Holy Spirit to give wisdom and revelation. What that means is that your mind can be fully opened that you can fully understand that ordinary people like us, most of whom aren't that smart, can actually look at what God is saying and understand for what purpose? Look at those last words. So that you may know Him better. That is the deepest need of every Christian. That is the deepest need Of every single Christian to know God better. Why? Well, two reasons. Firstly, because God is amazing. To know God. Imagine having permission to walk into the the office of the the first minister. You don't have a first minister. So the office of the highest politician in the land. Imagine going to, to Washington and having the opportunity to walk into the president of the United States office and greet him by name and have him greet you in return. You can know God, the real God who made everyone and everything. He is beyond our comprehension. He is unutterably, incomprehensibly powerful and glorious and strong and majestic. But also, why is it so incredible? Because it's what you were made for. It's actually what you were designed for. You were made for this knowledge. You were made to know God. And the thing that will make your life authentically alive... I mean this. The thing that will make your life authentically alive... It's not money. It's not sex. It's not a good reputation. It's not being impressive. It's not getting a lot of likes on social media. The thing that will make you authentically alive... ...is the deepening knowledge of God. And the word for know here is not the acquisition of information... It's not so you can read God's biography and sort of like, well, then turn around and say, I know God, even though you've never met him. This word, know, is about a deep personal knowledge. I mean, eight years ago, uh, my old church back in Sydney, we had two guys join our church. Very, very different sort of fellas, you know. One was called Sam. I'll call him Sam, because his name was Sam. And his name, Sam, is, you know, he's a bricklayer. Didn't finish high school, um, Used to wear a lot of jewellery. That seems to be a universal language. Men with a lot of jewellery. Okay, he was a guy who, you know, wasn't what you'd call an academic, and yet he came to like the life course we put on, and he heard the truth about Jesus, and he became a Christian. Simultaneously, we had another guy called Ben. That's not his name. And Ben was a doctor. Wow, a real doctor. And Ben came to our church and he also attended that course and he also made what we call a profession of faith. But as time went on, it became very, very clear that there was two very, very different things about Ben and about Sam. Ben became someone who developed an earnest desire to intellectually grow in his knowledge of the Bible, of academic pursuit. His passion to study the Bible was really built by trumping people at Bible study groups by being a superior knowledge in an argument, or even more importantly, impressing his Christian girlfriend. Sam, however, Sam didn't have that. Sam struggled. He still does struggle with his Bible reading. He struggles with his prayer. He works a lot of hours, can't make Sundays, a bunch of things. But eight years on, Ben no longer calls himself a Christian. He married that Christian girl and we're pretty sure she doesn't call herself a Christian now either. But if you met Sam, you would know that's a man who knows God. Sam is solely responsible for more people becoming Christians than I think any other man I've met. Because, oh, he doesn't care. He's <laughs> like, oh, I come to church. And people come to church because they see his jewelry. You know, They're like, okay, I'll come to church. <laughs> Sam knows God, not the intellectual academic pursuit that can become so passionate for all of us, but a true deep knowledge of God. So let me ask you tonight, do you know God? Do you know God? How can you know? Well, I'll tell you how you can know you do know God. Is Jesus Christ your Lord and your Savior? I'm not saying have you inherited that kind of belief system from your parents? I'm saying, have you ever truly repented, turned around and put your faith in Jesus as your Lord? Have you ever truly understood that you're not going to be good enough for God, that you're not going to be good enough for heaven, that you can't possibly get there on your own, that you need Jesus, that you need a Saviour, that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead for you and you've turned around from your sin and put your faith in Him? If you have done that, then you do know God. What should our prayer then be for each other? Look, well, you don't have to. But feel, if you like, the person on your left and the person on your right. If they're a Christian, what should be your prayer for them? That they know God better. What what should be your prayer for me? That I know God better. What should be our prayer? How can we display the love for all people that Paul wants us to do? Pray that we know God better. Now... That's for us as individuals. I just want to take just a moment to just think about church. Churches do a lot of things, don't we? Like, if you've ever been around a church, you will see an endless supply of activities and events and ministries. Many of you recently, as we've caught up, have asked me, what kind of ministries do you do here at Church, Which is a terrific question, a wonderful, a valid question. I could list... You know, a yellow page is worth of the, the events and activities that we have on here. Life course, growth group, kids church, youth group, food bank, refugee ministry, all types of things that happen. We do these ministries not because we're bored, but because we want to see people become Christians. And if you are a Christian, we do them because we want to see you grow in your love for Jesus. But there's a real danger with doing a lot of stuff. And the danger is that in our busyness, we can lose sight of what we're meant to be about. For us as a church, if Unichurch is your church, it's absolutely vital that we must be fiercely committed to our chief mission and purpose, and that is not trying to to grow, to to impress other people. It is not becoming a social club filled with faux spiritual activities. It is not a place for you to come And lecture everyone about church politic and denominational superiority. We are to be a collection of people who earnestly desire to know God better. And if we're not doing that, we ain't a church. We might use the title, but we're just pretending. The thing about knowing particular people is that they can change you. Those relationships, you know, you meet a whole bunch of people, the knowledge of which changes your life in no way whatsoever. You know, you catch the bus, the bus driver, it's unlikely unless he crashes the bus that it's going to be an intimate relationship, really, is it? A a life-transforming relationship. Nothing against bus drivers. But your parents, the knowledge of them, life-transforming. Your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your husband, your wife, your best friend, your college lecturer, your your boss, your relationship with those people transforms things, my dear friends, The purpose of this knowledge of God is that it will change you. And I want to make this clear, we're not talking about a theoretical pursuit here. This is talking about real life. Knowing God changes how you live, and that's exactly what we see next. Look at verse 18. Look at the prayer that he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. I don't know if you've ever thought about your heart having eyes before. What does he mean by that? He's saying your soul, your core, your centre, the real you that's deep within, that you would understand something, that the knowledge of God would bring the word, look at it, enlightenment. That's a very popular word, isn't it? It's generally associated in Australia with people who do a lot of yoga. Okay, Enlightenment some sort of spiritual plane. But that's not in the Bible what the word enlightenment means. Enlightenment's direct definition is illumination. Illumination. The shining of light, not upon something new, but upon something ancient and old. The awareness of a pre-existing truth. For the first time. Let me try and explain. My least favourite four words in the universe are these ones. Are you ready? We need to talk. Do you hate those words? I'm just like, you just talk! Don't tell me we need to talk, we're talking! Because it's very rarely associated with good news. You know what I mean? Very, very rare that people will say, Hey, we need to talk. I love you. You just say, I love you. My teenage years were littered with girls telling me we needed to talk. Some of them I didn't even really know very well. They're just like, we need to talk, go our way. It's enough. The reason I hate it so much is because it's the idea that there's a truth that exists that directly connects with me, that's actually about me, but I don't know it. You know what I mean? Someone's talked about me. Someone's thought about me. Someone said something about me. Someone has an opinion—a very strong opinion—about me that's going to affect me, but I don't know what it is. So don't arrange a coffee meetup. Just tell me. But the truth is, there is a few times when those four words can be a precursor to good news. We need to talk. I got the promotion. We need to talk. You need to come into the to the surgery. Your cancer is in remission. We need to talk. Will you marry me? Paul is telling us that we need to talk. He prays that our hearts may be enlightened, that we may understand that there is an existing, ancient, ancient as all time, truth that many of us have never had illuminated. There are truths about God and truths about you and truths about you and God that will change everything, but you just don't know what they are. So what are they? Have a look. 18, 19. The eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that, he says three things, you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. You see them there? Three things. Hope, inheritance, power. What is it that will transform your life? Hope, inheritance, power. Hope. What a beautiful word, isn't it? the opposite of despair, the opposite of uncertainty. But we often think hope is kind of that spiritual crossing of your fingers. Well, I'm not sure what the result will be, but I'm kind of hoping it's going to be positive. That is not what the word hope means in the Bible. Hope is solid. It's concrete. It's real. God is offering and telling you a beautiful certainty. What is it? That if you are a Christian... You know where you're going. This life is not all there is. If you are a Christian, then you belong to God's kingdom. And that means that when you die, you are going to heaven. Solid fact. It's not based on being good enough. It's based on your faith in Jesus. And what we need are new spiritual eyes that do not fret and worry at every setback. New spiritual eyes that do not somehow believe we've got to be good enough for God, that we can lose our salvation by being sinful. New spiritual eyes that fix everything about us, not on tomorrow, but on eternity. That we are living today, not in the light of what happens tomorrow, but in the light of what happens forever. Gee, that makes your problems right now feel fairly small, doesn't it? In the light of eternity. Hope. I met up with a man recently who was dying of cancer. He's now passed away. And I spoke to him. He's not a Christian man. I spoke to him and I said, brother do you think you're going to heaven? And you know what he said? I don't know. I'm going to risk it. I explained the truth about Jesus to him, the death and the resurrection of Jesus to him, but he would not hear. I'm not sure. I'm just going to risk it. My dear friends, if you're in Christ, you don't have to risk it. Jesus risked it all. He gave it all so you could have it all inheritance. Listen to what he says next. The riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. Now what's an inheritance? An inheritance is obviously something you get when someone dies, someone leaves something for you. Paul has already said what your spiritual inheritance is. What is it? That you are going to heaven. But this truth is not a truth about your inheritance. Look what he says. The riches of his. Who's the his? It's God. Of God's glorious inheritance. Inheritance. This is a statement not about what you will inherit in your life, but what God will inherit. So what is God's inheritance? It's you. You are God's inheritance. Have you ever thought of yourself as God's inheritance? You are God's treasure. You are God's portion. You you are God's inheritance. It's us. It's the church. Redeemed sinners. And I have no idea if you feel worthless right now. I have no idea if you are finding your worth to be based on other people's opinions, to be worth on your success at work or school or university, if you're finding your value on any number of things which go up and down and up and down. But those things are nothing more than figments of your imagination because your true worth has already been purchased by Jesus at the cross. Your true worth is that you are God's treasure. You are God's inheritance. You are God's portion, his possession. And your value is not what people say and not what people think. Do you know that? Your value is not what people say and not what people think. Your value is not even what you say because you are often your own worst enemy. Always your own worst enemy. What you think does not matter. What does God think? You're his inheritance, his possession. Then finally, power. Look at that. God promises for his people the incomparably great power for those of us who believe. By power, don't think of the power to open and shut doors like the Force in Star Wars, to sort of balance things around, you know. That's often what we think of when we think of God's power, But that's not what he's talking about here. Look at verse 19 to verse 21. The power that every Christian person has is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly realms. The power that rose Jesus from the dead is alive in you. And that power is not given to you so you can open and shut doors like a magician. The power that is given to you is so you can do the most incredible, miraculous act of any human being ever. What is it? That you can persist with Jesus as Lord. That is the power that God gives you. That you will not fall, you will not sway. It does not matter the trial, it does not matter the temptation, it does not matter the tribulation. That if you are gods, you are God and you are marked with the Holy Spirit, a seal upon your soul. And the power is persistence, the power is possession, the power is perseverance, that you will make the finish line, my dear friends. You will make God's kingdom when you leave this country, when you leave this earth, that you are his. The ability to press on. Not from yourself. Oh, There's no chance. Sin, Satan, self, the three S's, they're driving you away. But verse 22, 23, Jesus is more powerful, as Xander said at the introduction. Jesus is more powerful than any dominion, any power on this planet. He's more powerful than your own sinful temptation. He's more powerful than anyone attacking. He's more powerful than any external pressure. Jesus is our head. Together. So these things, hope, inheritance and power, mean for us that we do not need to fear, we do not need to fret, we do not need to tremble or worry. We are God's inheritance and in Him we have hope. And what that means is that no matter where you find yourself tonight, my dear friends, if you are in Christ, then you will persevere. You do have eternal hope. You are His forever. Now what does that look like? Well, I want to close with one final thing that I want you to dwell on this week. In fact, more than this week, I'd love for you to dwell on it until you're dead. And one final thing I'd love for you to chat about with one another, to think about, and, it, and it's this. Don't major on the minors. Now, have you heard that expression before, don't major in the minors? What it means is don't waste your life pursuing things that don't matter. You and I are excuse machines. We will be distracted from what really matters, make excuses about it, and then follow a hundred different courses. We do that in nearly every facet of our lives professionally, personally, romantically. We lose sight on what matters and we zero in and focus on things that have no real consequence. Every single person here wants to make their life count. I guarantee it. Every single one of us wants to live a life that truly matters. So how do we do that? Well, it's about understanding, remembering, grasping and dwelling on what does matter. Not by being distracted by the periphery, but finding and focusing what counts. What does that look like spiritually? Well, my dear friends, let me just talk corporately for us as a group and then individually. What would it look like if we were a church who was distracted by inconsequential things? It's so easy to do. It would be us as a church so focused on minor matters of denominational preference and church politics that we lose sight of what matters. People who would rather have arguments about style, arguments about denomination, arguments about liturgy, than proclaiming the gospel to a dying world. People whose chief purpose in life can be so easily consumed by the minutiae of church politic that they would care nothing for the millions of people in this country Living a Christless eternity. My friends, denominations and things, they matter. I'm pro-denomination. I'm pro-church politic. They're wonderful things, but they're not our main effort. They're not our main force. They're not our true north. They're not what we're meant to be focusing and majoring on. What should we be focusing and majoring on? Well, we'll get there. What else would it look like for a church? It could be a church that's so fixated with social justice, so fixated with feeding the poor, that we're distracted from our gospel calling. You know, it's very easy to see someone who's hungry and want to feed them. It's very difficult to see someone who is spiritually hungry, isn't it? It's very difficult to take a photograph of someone who's spiritually starving. And so, in order to impress the world, in order to justify our existence, we'll get a bunch of meals and we'll put them together, not caring about the people's eternities. There's nothing wrong. Of course, it's a wonderful thing to feed the homeless, to feed the hungry, to give of our money and our time and our food to people in need. We need to do that out of love. But if we do it with silent mouths about the gospel, we've missed the point. We've missed the point. For us as individuals, my dear friends, this is a challenge of our lives. How do we not get distracted when we're so easily distracted? Distracted by style, distracted by preference, distracted by denomination, distracted by passion, distracted by the pressure, that kind of evangelicalish pressure to read the Bible and pray as if these things justify you before God. My dear friends, all of us right now need to grasp hold of what the major thing is and continually refocus on it every single hour. What is it? It's knowing God better. How do you you major on the major? You focus your heart and your soul on knowing God. You live with eternity in mind. That who you are is not defined by today or tomorrow, but forever. How do we do it practically? Just take the example of Paul in this letter. We remember God and we thank Him. Are you a thankful person, someone who prays in thankfulness to God for all the good gifts He gives you? I promise you, if you generate that attitude and and setting towards God, it's very hard to be resentful and distracted when you're continually praying to God as you walk, as you drive, as you move about the place, thanking Him for things, thanking Him even for your enemies, for the opportunity to show them grace. It's being a person of faith a person who who focuses on what Jesus has done on the cross for our sins, and a person of love, a person who focuses your passion on people you don't even like, people with different politics than you in this room, people with different opinions on all manner of things, even football teams here within this room. It's been a person of Jesus' death and resurrection that every day you remember what Jesus did for you. You remember that he rose from the dead and that he's alive today. My friends, I don't know about you, I don't know what words you once said at your funeral, but I reckon at my funeral, if they can say something like, this is a man who tried to know God, this was a man of faith and love, who earnestly tried to know God better, I'd be thrilled. I don't want to be known for any number of inconsequential things, but for what matters. How about you? Let's bow our heads and and let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your son Jesus that he died on the cross and rose from the dead so that we can be saved. I thank you, Lord, that you have made clear to us what truly matters in this life and that it is not the, the inconsequential material things that we are so easily distracted by, but it is upon knowing you. And I pray for all of us, Lord, all of us, that we would be struck and driven to deepen our relationship with you. That we'd be defined and identified, find our value not in reputation, but in your son Jesus' death and resurrection from the cross. And Father God, I pray uh, for people in this room who are not yet Christians, I pray for the work of your spirit in their hearts, bringing them to you, revealing to them the truth, showing them your grace. And I pray all of this in Jesus' precious and powerful name. Amen.